criminal behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. This is Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host, Timothy Joseph, and we've got a great episode with someone that's helped me out recently in a uh, webinar that focused on the uses of behavior analysis. He is Joseph Cotilli, and he discusses at length uh, the use of our field in corrections in the treatment of mental disorders, including depression and schizophrenia. Joe also lists some of the past accomplishments which are at risk of disappearing unless a new generation of researchers will help carry the torch. In this very cerebral conversation, we examine how specialists in the field have made important gains that were never put into widespread use or which have otherwise been pushed aside in favor of some of the more popular applications of behavior analysis. So go ahead and enjoy the interview. Uh, Joe has a lot to say, and uh, we had a little bit of audio trouble in it, but I think we've got most of that cleaned up. Uh, Feel free to write back and tell us what you think. Uh, Leave a review, and if you're interested in a transcript, go ahead and write Criminal Behaviorology at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll just go ahead right now and let's listen to Joe. Okay, well, welcome then. Joe Cotilli, you you are uh, a very experienced man. In, uh, did you start out as a psychologist? Uh, actually, I started out as a counselor. Uh-huh. Um, so did I. I started at Temple University. I got my start as a counseling in counseling psychology. That's my first master's degree. Uh-huh. Uh, at the time, uh, I was in my uh, master's program. We were, I had lo- latched on to the local behaviorist who was there uh, at Temple University, and that was David Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was sort of my mentor when I was in my master's program in counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did some work with him. Um, Alan Ivey had uh, developed, Alan Ivey was a humanistic counselor, mm-hmm. and he had developed this. Uh, he did what he called his behavioral excursion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he developed a thing called micro skills training hmm. for counselors. And micro skills training became a very popular way of training counselors where you would break the counseling skills. You did a task analysis of counseling and you broke the counseling skills into micro skills and then you trained them. Well, when I was with David Reynolds, one of the things we were spending a lot of time talking about was making that into a class and Temple mm-hmm. actually had used classes like that in the past where they would go uh, through each of the discrete counseling skills such as reflective listening, such as paraphrasing, uh, active listening techniques and they would use them in this model and then have counselors do that we would videotape it and then we would actually play it back. Um, and then I went to Temple's uh, after that, 
so that was like 88, 89, 90, I went into temples, uh, 91-ish, I went into temples, um, uh, applied behavior analysis program through special education. Mm -hmm. uh, I concentrated and focused on applied behavior analysis. Now, I had many years in the field up until that point. Um, and then uh, after that, I moved to... After that, I moved into Temple's school psychology, and that was in 2005. I licensed as a psychologist a few years later. Well, my first license was in counseling. My second was as a psychologist. I helped the counselors in Pennsylvania get the counseling license. Mm -hmm. uh, then a few years later, I moved into my postdoctoral uh, master's program at Fairleigh Dickens University, and I did a postdoctoral master's in clinical psychopharmacology, um, and then that was the end of my academic career. <laughs> so I did the postdoctoral master's in clinical psychopharmacology mm -hmm. uh, probably around 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. it, it's somewhat similar for me, not as extensive, but I started work at a psychiatric hospital, and I knew nothing about mm -hmm behavior analysis i went to a brian iwata conference and uh it was all about the functions and i thought well this is really you know right up our alley this is what we it wasn't really well it was kind of a seen as a formality to go to that but i thought that was really essential for the kinds of problems that we were having in the hospital is to and and mm -hmm. what you said also about breaking things down to smaller tasks task analyses I just thought it was exactly what was needed. That's how I got where I'm working on tonight. So. Excellent. <laughs> so, see, we have some tie-ins together. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's some similarities there, but um, you had uh, written about uh, an editorial about schizophrenia in 2007, <laughs> and, and it was a uh, it was a uh, following up on the. If I'll just. Yeah speak of it briefly it's a it's about well you know why haven't in general why haven't uh behavior analysis been used more for the problems like schizophrenia and and what can you tell us about that well if you look at behavior analysis in some ways schizophrenia has become like our forgotten promise Mm -hmm. We had gotten early on the behaviorists like Gordon Paul were all involved with uh, units for schizophrenia. Matter of fact, if you look at the first draft of evidence based practices that were put out uh, by Division 12 in the American Psycholo Psychological Association, the clinical division, I might have the division number wrong, I'm getting older now. But if you look at it, one of the things you'll see there is token economies for schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And so that was the initial rush of behavior analysts in the schizophrenia. Uh, when I was in graduate school, a co-worker, a co-student of mine, Julia Greeston, had written a book with Alan Bellack and Kim Muser uh, on social skills training for schizophrenia, uh, which was actually very popular at the time. Now, social skills training, and training for schizophrenia has a small effect size, small or moderate, even things with like a small effect size in meta-analysis, if you take them out across an entire system, can have large impact. Uh, for example, uh, Biglin had pointed this out. That if every, uh, the, if you do the meta-analysis, for example, on health behavior, and you, if a doctor just says to a person, you know, you should quit smoking if they smoke, there's a five percent chance they quit. 
mm-hmm. which is a very small chance. But if every doctor in the country did that for every patient that smoked, uh-huh. you had massive effect on the system. Mm-hmm. And so these were some of the kind of things that I think people had missed about behavior analysis. It wasn't going to be the uh, only intervention that's used. But when I was a much more avid goer of conferences and I was at AABT back then, which was the Association for Advancement of Behavior Therapy, which later became the Association of Cognitive and Behavior Therapy, Cognitive and Behavioral Therapies. Uh, when I was at uh, there, one of the big things all the behaviorists were interested in, this is back in the 90s, was this concept of um, punishment density and how escaping punishment led to schizophrenic relapse Mm -hmm. and so people with schizophrenia having relapse sorry old person old language comes out every so often but um so the idea there uh is that the home would become punishing and they had a concept that started out as negative expressed emotionality then they just started calling it Mm -hmm. expressed emotionality but it was this idea of punishment density so there was a behavior uh, family therapy model that was built on communication training problem solving and the use of token economy systems uh, which actually proved to be extremely beneficial either alone or in conjunction with medication in preventing schizophrenia hospitalization, mm-hmm. right? And this was a real uh, interesting point here. The idea of this concept of that the home gets too punishing, the person with schizophrenia wants to escape, they wind up at the hospital, mm-hmm. right? That maybe if we could lower the punishment density, some of the negative expressed emotionality of the parent yelling and screaming. What Patterson used to refer to with conduct disorder kids as nattering behavior, mm. uh, which is just not effective punishment techniques, but really just aversives. Um, and if we can actually lower that and increase the rate of positive reinforcement for the person, a lot of what we see as behavioral problems with schizophrenia lower to the point where the family is not as burdened, they're less likely to take the person to the hospital, lower the point for where the uh, person with schizophrenia was Mm -hmm. uh, so that they could then uh, not have to run and escape to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And you could actually produce a better system. Now, the interesting thing about behavioral feminine therapy is it actually has a really good evidence base. It has a really good Fallon, F-A-L-L-O-O-N, Falun, I think that was one of the names associated with it. Lieberman was also very big in the area, but he was also with social skills training for schizophrenia. He did a lot of stuff on um, being assertive with your doctor and being able to tell him when you had medication side effects and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But if you look, this was actually a very evidence-based, this behavioral family therapy model was a very evidence-based practice for uh, not just treating schizophrenia, but Medication is very good for the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, the things mm-hmm. we see, the behavioral excesses that we see too much of, the, the, the negative, um, the voices in the head kind of thing. But it does not do a good job at all on what's called the negative symptoms of schizophrenia or the deficits, the lack of motivation, the failure to clean oneself, the failure to clean house. And that actually turns out to be a bigger long-term yeah. predictor of long-term outcome with mm-hmm. schizophrenia. 
uh, with people with schizophrenia. And so back in 2007, there was an article written that was sort of like, okay, well, behavior analysis has been kind of locked out. And I, I want to go through and basically say, well, we've had areas of success. Mm-hmm. If we could work through as a team with some of these areas, I think that um, that this will be a very, very good uh, area for behavior analysis to kind of go back to its original promise, which if you if you remember the um, the I, I, and I forget who did the study, but uh, might have been Holt Nazarin where they were uh, showing that you can take a vegetative uh, person with schizophrenia and get them to basically move more using reinforcement programs, mm-hmm. which then led into token economies, um, and you had Gordon Paul's program, which was one of the original biopsychosocial programs for mm-hmm. schizophrenia. You had Kafner and Saslow who did their uh, behavior analysis and functional analysis for mental health problems and looked at more of a broader-based kind of functional analysis. You had a really substantial model by which to move into the mental health field in general. And I think that over the course of my career, one of the things I've always been looking at is, uh, because as I said, my background was in mental health counseling, my background was in school psychology, it's always been, where have the behaviors been, um, and why aren't we there anymore? Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of what's happened is is in the early 2000s, the chasing the money phenomenon, mm-hmm. which is, um, I know, because I was teaching, I had a um, behavior analysis program in criminal justice that I had developed mm-hmm. uh, at St. Joe's University. This was the on-campus program. And we were training people in behavior analysis to use with uh, offenders and people in prison. Now, um, what happened was, though, at the time, is there were many people in the field of behavior analysis who were saying autism's where it's at, autism is where the field is. Some of them were the same people that said, Let's all go into developmental disabilities. So they didn't really uh-huh. change. They might have refined their population to even be a smaller one, but they didn't even they didn't really change um, their uh, position. They just picked a subdivision actually of some developmental disabilities. And so what happened was is the field went like gangbusters because a lot of uh, the stuff had come out in '87 on Lovas's study. Uh, on the effectiveness of behavior analysis um, when you go with very young kids uh, and you do early intervention, he was able to show um, that there was roughly a a 40% to 60% recovery rate. It's actually even mentioned in, um, if you look, it's actually even mentioned in an episode of Quincy where Quincy has an autistic child there and he's working with him and he says that maybe he wants to get him into like a low boss program and he says maybe really? it's just he wants the field. So yeah, so there's this old episode of Quincy which, you know, sparks this interest in the public. You know, Catherine Maurice did her book on Let Me Hear Your Voice which kind of popularized this whole idea of behavior analysis with autism but behavior analysts from all other areas started to dwindle Uh and in some ways were diminished in the field and i think we've lost a lot when that occurred 
I think that um, at the time I was trying to do, I was leading the push. I was the mm -hmm. editor and then the co-editor of, and then the associate editor for the journal, uh, the Behavior Analyst Today, mm -hmm. which was a journal that I had founded back then. And we were writing heavy gangbuster editorials on licensing a behavior analyst, thinking we would come in more broad based. Right. Uh, and, and we did when we did the licensing in Pennsylvania, we came out with a behavior specialist license. Pennsylvania behavior analysts still have the broadest range of practice in the entire country, uh -huh. but they license as a behavior specialist here, not as a behavior analyst. A lot of the behavior analytic programs were tied to uh, the licenses to autism bills, uh -huh. which Laura Unum wanted to do, and that, that actually was very effective, and that was very helpful, and she was very bright in doing that. Uh -huh. uh, but it's really focused in on um, narrowing the field, and I think that that has been... Look, when I got into behavior analysis, there were very few of us, and we went everywhere. Uh -huh. We did everything, uh -huh. right? Now there are very many of us, and I talked to some BCBAs, uh, who have gotten their degrees from maybe online programs or programs that were just a four course training course in behavior analysis. And I feel like I'm checking off, you know, Skinner and about behaviorism at this myths of behavior, behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm checking off the myths as they talk, like, Oh my God, uh -huh. do people really believe this. It's like almost like some of the people became stereotypes of behavior analysis rather than behavior. analysis. Uh -huh. With everything you hear, like behavior analysis doesn't address feelings, you know, and I get shocked when I hear these things. It's like, maybe I'm just too old and it's time to retire. <laughs> so, no, well, uh, I'm going to put a link in for the show Quincy in case anyone uh, is not aware of what the show is, if they listen to this, but, uh, um, with Jack Clutton, yeah. Quincy and me. <laughs> yeah, great. It was a great show, but it is, I mean, a lot of this, what we talk about with the focus it comes from the the Medicaid mandates to treat autism. I mean, we talked about following mm -hmm. the money. That's where it, it came from, that they got, they were able to get this, and that kind of made the industry into something for autism. But it has nothing to do with whether behaviorism is effective for one diagnosis or another. No, no, you're right with that. And actually, medication has come into other areas of, uh, that have pushed behavior animal style. We talked a little bit about schizophrenia. Well, the medications for schizophrenia, and I speak of this as someone that's fairly up to date on that literature because I get a postdoctoral master's in clinical pharmacology. The medications for schizophrenia have not, in general, been much better over the last mm -hmm. 30 years. Uh, we've gone from first-generation antipsychotics to second-generation antipsychotics because they said, okay, that these are safer, you don't get the extra pyramidal effects, but then you develop metabolic disorder, and they start mm -hmm. growing breast, and they start gaining weight, and they start having cholesterol problems and hypertension. People with schizophrenia, on average, die in the United States about 15 years earlier. Mm -hmm. than people who do not have schizophrenia. So there's a real social justice issue there. But the medication came in, people said, okay, this stops the hallucinations, this stops uh, these positive mm -hmm. symptoms of hallucinations and delusions, and so that's going to be our standard of care, mm -hmm. and everything else got faded to the side. Mm -hmm. And that's not so good. And this happened also with children with ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, 
There were early studies that showed that methylphenidate worked real well with ADHD. There was the MTA Collaborative that found out that the combined uh, methylphenidate worked real well with uh, with uh, superior behavior therapy. But that study had two problems. One is on poor symptoms, they called it. One is they defined the core symptoms as everything that the medication did. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, of course, symptom any of these other problems. Mm -hmm. It was just what the medication actually attacked. So they kind of rigged the study from set one. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are people that do that. They bait their studies. Um, the second thing that MTA did, and I kind of forgot it for a minute, so now I have to come back to it. The second thing they did is if you go back to the initial study, they faded out the behavior therapy program as they should have done. Mm -hmm. But then they did their evaluation six months to nine months mm -hmm. after the behavior therapy program was faded out. Mm -hmm. So now you have medication active compared to faded behavior therapy. So why don't you just compare it to faded medication? Well, you, everybody says, well, you know that medication is they're not taking it. But the behavior therapy was generalized uh, and they, they had a study that showed they got fairly good maintenance on the behavior therapy program, but still an active treatment better than a generalized treatment mm -hmm. in those respects. The other thing is you found out even with the kids with ADHD, medication doesn't do much when it comes to the symptoms that are um, not in the core diagnosis, like the oppositionality uh, that you may develop. And so... Behavior analysis had a good foot into this. Even Russell Barkley, if you read his book on self-control, he adopts the rule govern model, which is kind of a hybrid model from um, Skinner's verbal behavior. And the early work that Steve Hayes was doing uh, on clients and tracking, before Steve Hayes went all into the relational frame stuff, he mm -hmm. was doing the okay. counters. So you had tax, and then, then the counter for the tech was uh, appliance. And then you had the man and the counter, the listener behavior to the man was tracking. Um, reverse that. I think I just said that in reverse. But um, so what he was doing was, and they grabbed the old um, work on self-control. If you remember Don Beer, he did this idea of when Don Beer was working with uh, children with uh, – um, uh, impulsivity. He did what was called correspondence training. And there's two types of correspondence. There's see, say correspondence. Uh, there's do, say, mm -hmm. and then there's say, do correspondence. If you think of it as a learning channel and then an action. Mm -hmm. uh, so he actually had the do, say correspondence, which do, say is you do something and then somebody mm -hmm. stops you and asks you what you did and you're able to say it. And then you place a reinforcer on that. And then the other was the say-do correspondence, mm -hmm. which is you said you were going to do something and then you did it, and then they gave you the reinforcer for having done what you said you were going to do. Mm -hmm. Well, the correspondence training went into self-control training programs. Mm -hmm. Now, self-control training programs, uh, you could see the, the influence of – I'm trying to remember his name. Guess what? P, I think it's Paglia. He did the self-control training for ADHD kids. Where they would sit, they would put out a uh, the person next to them would write the rating of the kid's behavior on a one to five scale, uh, one to ten scale, and then the 
kid would write their own rating of their behavior on a 1 to 10 scale. They would both then flip it over. If their ratings matched, the kid would get two bonus points. If their ratings didn't match but were within one of each other, they would get the higher of the two ratings. And if there were more than two points apart, they would get no points for it. Mm -hmm. So the idea was this was increasing correspondence between what they said and what they did, the idea of building uh, rural government behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and then they would move into um, uh, Watson. Uh, a lot of people don't realize Watson was very heavy into problem solving. He's actually one of the first people to study talk aloud problem solving. He uh -huh. had this model by which you would talk aloud problem solve situations and then you would slowly make it less and less vocal, sub vocalization. Uh -huh. So it would start after correspondence training, it would go to problem solving. And so you were moving from um, uh, from clients to tracking. So the idea was to move the person from compliance to amend to tracking the occurrence of general rules and this was laid out even in russell barkley's book on self-control which is in the 90s uh and you can see that model laid out there and it was actually debated by behavior analysts uh david reitman did an excellent uh he had written one of the first things on the development of rural government behavior but then kind of swayed away from that and so in the early 2000s he had written an article on uh on why it might not be a good thing to go into this model of behavior and just stay focused on contingencies, which was actually a pretty decent paper. And there were counter papers. He was writing counter paper to, uh, I think it was Leisha Barry's paper at the time, but I can't remember. Well, <laughs> well uh, Joe, I mean, uh, the things like ADHD and schizophrenia, uh, a lot of the people conceptualize them as a chemical imbalance or lack of a chemical balance in the brain or some kind of neurological problem like the major mental illnesses are really just neurological problems that we don't understand well that yet is that well, i mean how do you respond to that idea well i tell people it's a person that exists in a context people are biopsychosocial beings uh -huh. and just because something is biological doesn't mean you can't treat it behavioral uh -huh. And we've done that for autism, uh -huh. which probably has a strong biological component to it. Uh -huh. We've done that for schizophrenia, which has a biological component to it. Uh -huh. Now, I used to teach a course in uh, developmental psychopathology, behavior analysis, and child development, behavior analysis, and developmental psychopathology, where I looked at behavioral models of how these syndromes develop. Uh -huh. But even if you go back to the early conduct disorder model, Right, where you're talking about, and I could talk a little bit about that in a minute if you like, but you could talk about um, the initial work by Herb Quay and some of the people was that from, uh, from a very young age, children were showing a hypo-responsiveness to punishment. And so, and they were more likely to develop what we would come to see as oppositional defined disorder and conduct disorder. Now, early on, Patterson and Conger kind of showed that. So he basically argued that it was a um, uh, that it was a biologically set basis. They're less responsive to punishment, so the parents have to use more punishment. The punishment gets kind of chaotic, and that's how you wind up with a conduct disorder. Mm -hmm. Patterson, on the other hand, showed that. If the early learning environment is sort of uh, erratic, then the child becomes less sensitive 
contingencies in general, not just punishment, yeah. uh, the reinforcement reward. Uh-huh. And this was Patterson and Conger's uh, paper, and they were able to show, this was very early, that you can actually produce a similar effect by uh, lack of contingency detection from the child by uh, making it uh, less clear how the contingencies are going to occur. So this, and I think he talks a little bit about it. Patterson, um, unfortunately, has passed uh, many years ago, a couple years ago, and he was a phenomenal. Uh, he was, um, he, you always referred to himself as a social interactionist. He used a lot, a lot of behavioral, I mean, he started out as a behavior, uh, behaviorist, and he moved to social interactionism because he took the reward and punishment principles and took them as more live action between people. But if you look mm-hmm. in his uh, last book that he did for APA, which I think everybody should read, which is a phenomenal of how this research can be done, uh, he did a book with James Snyder, and it's on APA Press uh, on uh, development conduct disorder. And uh, it's kind of an edited volume. Some of the chapters in that book are really phenomenal. So anyway, so you get that as the social learning, social interactionist, behaviorist perspective on the development of conduct disorder. But even if you were to buy that something starts out as biological, uh-huh. does not mean you can't fix it. Uh-huh. People cannot rewrite their software to accommodate. It. Yeah, it, you right. cut out just a so second, think, Joe. You yeah. cut out just a second. So just because something is biological does not mean you can't use behavioral interventions. To, to great effect, uh, in other words. Right. So the idea here is that there's probably biological stuff in a lot of things. Even language probably has uh-huh. some kind of, you know, we speak, for example, even Skinner acknowledged that we speak when we talk about verbal behavior. It starts out the idea we speak, but you don't, you get remnants of it in uh, chimpanzees, but you don't get pigs. Uh-huh. Right, you get uh, you get sign language, uh, like Nemchitsky got sign language and Hansi uh, got sign language real well. Uh-huh. But you don't, you can get those kinds of processes, but you don't get anything that looks like human language. We build cities, for example. Uh-huh. Uh, you don't see that in many of the animal species. So you've got to say there's some biological credence to some of these things. Uh-huh. But is it all biology? And I go back to. Uh, Japan pre and post World War II when I give the example is before World War II uh, uh, the average Japanese citizen height was four inches shorter than post World War II mm-hmm. now obviously we did not get a genetic mutation in those three years of World War II what happened was post World War II was you had a flood of protein in the Japan and so what happened was from the flood of protein so Height's all biological until you get one factor uh-huh. that shows you that you have a lot of environmental room to play with. Uh-huh. Um, with conduct disorder, we found out, Gottlieb did studies, and I can't remember the actual study, but he found that uh, shared family environment, he was looking at twins, twins raised apart, uh-huh. raised apart, and twins raised together versus... Uh, just twins separated at birth um, and non-twins, non-identical twins. And what he found out is shared family environment was the biggest predictor of mm-hmm. the development of conduct disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90% of the kids that were truly rated as conduct disorder. 
Um, and there's been a lot of variables on that. If you even go back to the 60s, forgotten literature there is the moderating children. You see the kids who grow up in the free-for-all where they have no parental monitoring, they have no contingencies put in place, much more likely to develop problems with the legal system and the law. Mm -hmm. So there's stuff that goes all the way back to then. You can see studies from the 40s and the 50s and that help. Um, so just because something comes up with a biological variable does not mean it's all biological. And if anything, you have a person that interacts with a context over time and that produces the results mm -hmm. that you get either as psychopathology or develop, I mean, developmental psychopathology or as improvement or whatever along the line. And that's something very powerful to kind of think about. Mm -hmm. uh, you had in uh, the ABAI conference in 2015, apparently you had a, a, a discussion about the correctional system and behaviorism. What, what can you tell us about that? Well, I was um, a correctional uh, psychologist for mm -hmm. about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, this was 2009 to like 2011. Mm -hmm. I was a correctional psychologist. Um, and a lot of people don't realize this, but there's a... Uh, Behavior analysis really goes through its periods. Um, sometimes it got run out of fields because of its abusiveness. Uh, and it wasn't uh, such a good idea. Like uh, in corrections, I think one of the killer things was the Sicily uh, treatments that were done by psychiatrists, that weren't done by a behavior analyst. Uh -huh. They would inject you when you did something bad with this drug that made you feel like you were suffocating for 10 minutes no, right really and so yeah i, I never so heard that so this led to um and I, I think gold diamond talked a lot about this do we want to be a purely eliminative approach or do we want to be a constructivist approach and in other words do we want to build skills or do we want to be something just to suppress behavior mm -hmm. and a lot of the behavior analytic stuff that was done at that time was um was actually uh being just used in a purely eliminative fashion. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a point for purely eliminative programs. I'll get to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, can tell you that in purely eliminative programs, you do get rid of some behavior problems that if you don't get rid of them, can be a real problem prisons. But mm -hmm. the two big, uh, and I ran a journal for a while that we sold to APA, mm -hmm. which was behavior analysis in uh, correctional environments, uh, uh, behavior analysis and, uh, and corrections. We sold that over to APA when we sold all the ABA journals to APA. Uh, now they're all housed under one title, uh, two titles, behavioral development, and the other journal is behavior, uh, behavior analysis, research, and practice. They're both ABA journal, uh, APA journals. Um, so you can always kind of publish there, but those journals are 20 years old now. But anyway, going back to corrections, I, as I told you, I taught in a criminal justice department. There was a long history of behavior analysis and corrections. And the meta-analysis, there were two really important meta-analytic studies. Now, these meta-analysis studies, you shouldn't just take them completely for behavioral, but I can actually send you the link. I have actually uh, on my computer... I have, uh, hold on, I'll pull that up, and then if I could come over here and in the chat, 
This is Grant and Gardu's study. Two big studies. One showed that uh, behavioral programs, behavioral programs based on either behaviors and radical behaviors of social learning or CBT, that was what they defined it as, versus non-behavioral have, and that's the psychology of Spain meta-analysis I showed you, have a much larger effect size than non-behavioral programs in preventing recidivism. And then on the other one, uh, it's on prison misconducts. They looked at the same behavioral versus non-behavioral, and they looked at cognitive behavioral, radical behavioral, social learning as the uh, as the behavioral end. So they're not purely behavior analysis, but they're good starting points for us. And they found out that they had the largest effect size in reducing prison misconduct. So the idea here is, and I posted those two links up for you. I just mm -hmm. happen to have them on my computer. Um, so I just sent them both to you. But the idea here is, these are early 2000s, is behavior analysis has made a large contribution to uh, corrections and prison management systems. Now, initially, the push became that a lot of the things behavior analysts were doing, such as the person would earn reading material, were proven to be uh, things that the Supreme Court would rule were unethical, mm. uh, that they were illegal. You cannot deprive a prisoner of his right to read, so you can't hold his reading material to let him earn it back. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So a lot of that stuff got flattened there. Um, and so, you know, it took more creativity. Um, when I was in prisons, we were allowed to, uh, for example, use coffee as a motivator, but they didn't want us using coffee with caffeine. In. <laughs> right? Yeah, you, so, you, those kind of institutions, you run into to the practicalities of the setting you're in, which is what I found right. in the state hospital. There's just some realities about how things are done. And human rights and all kinds of things that that don't allow you to make the behavioral program that that you would necessarily want to do. Right. So, but again, so and I think some of it. This was questions early on, um, and if I could always, I gotta find that reference. There was a reference where there was actually a, a series of congressional hearings. This was in the seventies. They were done on behavior modification, what was called behavior modification back then, less use of functional analysis, more use of punishment procedures. And these, unfortunately, what happened from these is it set off a bad, uh, a bad uh, current uh, into the system. But even in prison, that was one thing that damaged behavior analysis in prison. In prison. But when I was working with my friend Kirk Neuringer on the, uh, on the journal, and we were both lead editors of the journal. Uh, we were finding other studies that still were getting done. Um, we were finding other studies that were still being done and that we were trying to get people to publish with us. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there are things such as functional analytic psychotherapy, which is a radical behavioral approach to the therapeutic alliance and working on intimacy behaviors that are very, very important. Behaviorism, by the way, really did survive more respondent conditioning procedures, but some operant conditioning procedures like Joe uh, Cotton, although sometimes I got mistaken for him when I was young. Um, <laughs> you, again, you, you were mistaken for whom? 
Joe Cotella. Oh, okay. Cotella, he, he was president of ABT, so I thought it was a great honor when I walked up to the thing and I asked, uh, I'm Joe Cotelli, I'm here for my uh, stuff, and they handed me Joseph Cotella's stuff. I says, I don't think he would be happy for it. And other people used to say when I was young that I looked a little like Joe Scotty, who was a behavior, a behaviorist at the Okay. So, because I think it was a dark beard and stuff. Okay. So between the two, I used to get confused. The people used to get confused with me all the time, but it was kind of like funny because those guys, obviously, wonderful careers to go emulate. Yeah. Uh, but Joseph Cotella, and he did a uh, a book. Um, he did it. Used to do contemporary issues of behavior therapy. Well, there was an article he did with Ashwick where he talked about a radical behavioral interpretation of empathy mm -hmm. and built an empathy training model mm -hmm. uh, for behavior, uh, behavioral interventions with uh, people who were perpetrators of things like uh, uh, sex offenders and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see that there was and there still is a very strong behavioral component. So, I mean... Uh, it, it was in it was in corrections, and you did have a lot of success with uh, with the the things that you were able to implement. Now, well, what happened was in 1993, uh, the number of people with mental illness and uh, in correction in, uh, in prisons was higher than the number of people. That was the first year. That was the crossing point. It was higher for people in corrections than it was in state hospitals and mm -hmm. mental health problems. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's been that way ever since. Mm -hmm. So when people tell me about deinstitutionalization, I always tell them you just changed the institution. Now they're in prison, whereas before they were in state hospitals. So right. kind of just switched where they went. Noble goal, but a fail. Anyway, so uh, what happened is, is you have a lot of people with mental illness in prison, and a lot of, um, a lot of prisons have a mental health unit. Mm -hmm. uh, to where people with mental health problems and that's an area where you can usually set up like sort of a token system uh, you can bring in your behavior analytic principles uh, you can do for example if you have a prisoner it's very unruly you can do functional analysis kind of stuff more descriptive stuff I wouldn't run those guys through it yeah. unless you got the security guard right next yeah, to yeah. you because yeah. <laughs> in prison. Remember, they're awarded the state for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh, so, uh, you know, you could run uh, stuff like that. Uh, and you get fairly good uh, good effective so uh, effects with those kinds of programs. Um, uh, Ma, who was in Japan at the time, he did a meta-analysis of, be for the behavior analysts today, he did a meta-analysis on the single subject research design. And I believe he either used pens or a hierarchical regression analysis. Mm -hmm. I don't remember, but he showed fairly good effects for behavioral programs across disruptive disorders, mm -hmm. not just uh, with kids with autism, but for adults with violent behavior in prison. Uh, and he was able to kind of show those. But I think that the point has to be, if you really want recidivism, you have to take a twofold focus. You really want to reduce recidivism. You have to build skills, which is a core of behavior analytic thinking. Mm -hmm. It's building repertoires, not just eliminating repertoires. Mm -hmm. And then also in the prison system itself now, they developed this uh, risk assessment, what they call risk assessment. And risk assessments break into three factors. 
They're static factors. They're things that happen in your past that you just can't change yeah. or things yeah. that are just unchangeable for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Then there are dynamic factors. There are things that you can change mm-hmm. that are ongoing. And then there are situational factors for the environment. Uh-huh. Now, the dynamic and situational factors, behavior analysts can actually spend a lot of time changing those factors. So uh-huh. we always had, uh, and I uh-huh. think Kirk Neuinger actually did an article on this in the old journal, uh, the old uh, behavior analysis and offender treatment journal that we used to have. I think he did a good article on that. There were several other articles that were published in that really uh, really good along that line. But the idea was to use this risk assessment, not, uh, what we know from statistical uh, statistical yeah. factor analysis stuff that leads to recidivism and then directly behaviorally targeting those points. So instruments so, like like maybe the HCR 20, uh, th- things yeah, like well, that, that focus on those three factors and that we, we come mm-hmm. in on, on the dynamic factors. Right, we could come in on the dynamic factors, and if you're taking more of a community kind of behavior analytic approach, it used to be something called uh, community behaviorism. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it still uh, exists, uh, but uh, it was a community psychology approach. You can actually eliminate some of the other factors uh, by using interventions along those lines. But mostly we were dynamic factors. We were building skills. Mm-hmm. We were trying to help switch and change motivation. Uh and those kinds of things can actually work. Um, you know, you could take a more behavioral counseling kind of format. Skinner actually did a nice talk about behavioral counseling. I think you probably still find that video online mm-hmm. uh, as a field. Um, and Hosford uh, wrote the original book on it, and you could go back and look at those old kind of studies. But yeah, behavior analysis had, as you'll see, um, now, some of the studies, it's not like all the behaviors completely disappeared from prison. Like I said, there were still a few, but they're retiring and they're leaving. As, uh-huh. uh, there's still a few uh, that were around in the early 2000s. Um, two things on that that I'd like to talk about is, one is the behavior analysts that still were doing stuff moved into residentials. And there used to be a journal. It was. It's now called... Behavioral Intervention. It was Richard Fox's journal. Mm-hmm. Before that, it was called Behavioral Residential Treatment. And he has always kept a good focus on behavior analysis in these kind of residential programs. And, and he's always had for publishing there. The other one is Teaching Family Homes, which a lot of people remember Achievement Place. That was uh, one of Montrose's Wolf's things. Well, Teaching Place, Achievement Place, became an entire series of homes. Uh, and uh, Bernstein published an article on that in the old Behavior Analyst today, which you can find on the APA website uh, if you search. But Bernstein talked about the 297 replications of the teaching family home mm-hmm. and how successful that's been. And they used like a, they used a combination uh, they used um, different things. Mostly they had their chips and dip program, which was like a token economy program, but they also used a level system that was uh, behaviorally based. Uh, and they're still around today, teaching family homes. Um, they got kind of a bad uh, rap. There was a period in corrections itself called the Why Nothing Works period. Right. <laughs> off, a, off a famous article of that name, right? Right. Nothing works. Why nothing? 
work. Some of this was, uh, remind me to talk about Cohen and Phil Patrick in a minute, Mm -hmm. but um, some of this, if you think about it, was that behavior analysts who were not very statistically savvy and who were very smart people, Montrose Wolf was, I wish I could do that, but Wolf does. But when he was doing some of the initial outcome data, he took at some of the homes that had completely fallen apart, right? Not because of anything that was wrong with the model, but because of the teaching parents that they had, uh, and used them in his final outcome data. So you were using outcome data of completely collapsed homes, which might have been better to kind of say these are outliers. Let's do an outlier land analysis of why they were, and then look at it. So a man named Kingsley, who was uh, really um, a behaviorist who was working at that point, did uh, what was called a Cox proportional regression analysis. Uh, First, he did an article for the Behavior Analyst Today on a review of the literature and the current thinking the old wisdom is not true about these teaching family homes. And then he did a uh, follow-up article on the Cox, using this Cox proportional regression analysis, which is a statistical analysis, and showed that they actually had a fairly large effect size. So the Teaching Family Association still exists today. Um, you could still get certified in teaching family. That, that's, by the way, something I've been telling people to do, and I've actually done that with my own company. As a lot of people know, I own a, a rather, uh, I own behavior analysis and therapy partners. We treat children in Ballot Kenwood and in Philadelphia, Montgomery, and Bucks County. So we're actually a very large company. We just signed a contract to do high schools in Philadelphia where we're doing, uh, we're doing behavioral interventions in the high school, and we're dovetailing with the school's positive behavior support programs. But one of the things I wanted to do is these are high school kids. So I said, well, look, high school kids, one of the big things with high school kids is drug and alcohol problems. Mm -hmm. Let's go, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bob Myers is retired. Nate Azarin had this program called Community Reinforcement Approach. Uh, and Bob's kind of pushed it out to community reinforcement and family training. He inherited that whole line of treatment. Mm-hmm. He became the trainer for adolescent CRA. Mm-hmm. I said, let's hire Bob to come in, do a training for our staff, uh, 40 hours, certify everybody uh, in community reinforcement and uh Community reinforcement approach. Community reinforcement approach is a very powerful approach. It's built on a functional analysis. It's Nate Azarin's program. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes care of uh, what they used to call thinking factors. Now they refer to them as cognitive factors mm-hmm. uh, by using them as an antecedent. Uh, it doesn't take them as causal, it takes them as antecedent variables. So you might be responding to an emotion you're having. Mm-hmm. And it does a standard functional assessment using that model and then trains the, uh, it's a self-control training, trains the um, the participant to turn around and to stay clean. It's got a lot of research support, but these are things that I don't know if there's an heir to the community reinforcement and fam- uh, family training model or an heir to the adolescent ACRA. So when these guys die or they, you know, retire, hopefully not for a long time to come yet, but, you know, they're in their 70s. You're not going to have it anymore. These will be items lost to, a- to ABA 
after they go. So either you invite them to do seminars and trainings, you get people interested in doing it. You get, if you have an agency, you seek these kind of contracts and use them for training now so you can establish a whole in and these were some strong evidence-based treatments. Uh, and so that's what happens. I, I seem like there's a pattern here of like a, some really good work that's been done. And it's it's uh, like you described, it's almost gotten forgotten. Or there's just a few um, people that have a lot of knowledge, but they're on in years. It's toward the end of their career when it should be growing and expanding, uh, which is part. Uh, I mean, you were part of a webinar recently on uh novel we call it novel uses of of aba when it should be one of the many uses of aba that grows and grows then what really is the problem with that uh why hasn't it taken off and uh especially it's not it's certainly not the lack of demand the the need for it that can't be it so what then is the problem well i did an article an editorial on behavior analysis and corrections and then i follow up uh, editorial on that when I was uh, associate editor, Mike was in charge. Mike Wine was great to work with. You ever get a chance to work with one guy who's funny, who keeps you focused and organized, and you know says, "Joe, this is a total tangent." <laughs> he's the guy. Okay. Uh, you know, and he's old now too. He's he's ten years older than me, so he's got to be uh, 65, 68 now. But we did a series of articles together on behavior analysis and editorials on behavior analysis and corrections. Mm -hmm. And what we found is just in general, some of it that got us out of that was the rush towards autism. Everybody wanted to go where they're going to make money uh, and that they're going to find a home quickly. And then the other end of that was the <coughs> with the with the prison system was the behavior analysts got uh, stuck. Yates did an article. Uh, you could search for references on my article for that, where she discovered that behavior analytic procedures and behavioral procedures in general were just done to enhance nursing routines, and they were not mm -hmm. constructed as – it's kind of the – one at Winkler did an article on the same subject, but they didn't have as much of the survey data uh, – and they did their article in Java. But back in the same time, Wynette Winkler were saying, wait, still quiet and docile should never be the outcome of a behavioral program for children in school. Mm -hmm. And so you saw this um, was a real criticism. And a lot of people that were doing behavior modification, remember, it was a very small community back then. There were a lot of people that called themselves behaviorists, but weren't behavior analysts. They certainly weren't radical behaviorists. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them were sort of, um, in the old days, they were more like methodological behaviors, those kinds of things. They were more behavior modifiers than anything. And they kind of rushed into cognitive therapy afterwards because that became the next trend. Uh, but the people that were core behavior analysts have never – I remember going to ABAI and I remember for sure I think we broke 5,000 in attendance and we were like all stunned that it actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's like we broke five thousand. There are five thousand of us. How'd that happen? Uh -huh. You know. And now you got like two different conferences that go on for ABAI. I think that the uh, BCBA board actually does its own conference too, uh, and the state associations do their conferences. But what you're seeing is that little by little, a lot of these areas, like. Um, for example, Fordyce, I talk about Fordyce's model uh, because it's very big in the pain field. 
but it's not very big with behavior analysts. It's, it's psychologists who've taken Fordyce's mm-hmm. pay model, mm-hmm. right? And Fordyce wrote in the 70s, The Awkward Guide to Pain Management. And mm-hmm. it's very popular in pain management, just not with us. Actually, the biggest application today of behavioral principles, I'll be honest, has nothing to do with behavior analysis at all. It's machine learning, and it's done by computer scientists that are building reinforcement systems to get artificial intelligence to learn. Mm-hmm. That is probably making the largest impact on our world right now. It's- it is... Uh, machine learning, and it has very little input from behavior analysts. That's interesting. I thought I thought you were going to say advertising, but uh... Uh, actually, advertising—you know—that's where Watson wound up. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of those ideas about jingles all uh-huh. come from um, come from what was back then. Uh, rest- conditioning, but we're back then referred to as classical conditioning uh-huh. associated learning. And uh-huh. a lot of them are built on those kinds of ideas. But um, yeah, I think that uh, there may be a day where you see computers functioning like people based completely on yeah. what was called Skinner bots uh-huh. uh, back in the old to Kirby's uh, literature out of uh, um, uh-huh. he worked out of University of Pittsburgh. And um, pretty much launched all this. He worked with responding conditioning. He worked with uh, uh, operant conditioning. And how do you reverse engineer that so a machine doesn't? Uh, and those might be the... It's interesting because a greater communication with behavior analysts might bring in concepts such as rule-governed behavior. Development. How do you develop rule-governed behavior, which I think could add massive amounts to the machine learning field. Mm-hmm. Right? But you know, there are many ways, and and, and they subscribe to a very much uh, an old-fashioned reinforcement model, mm-hmm. with uh, which is kind of a reinforcement uh, old model, not a model based on the matching uh, in the machine learning area. It'd be nice to get some of those machine learning programs to be based on the matching law. It'd be nice to. There was a behavior a behavioral linguist. His name was Esper, uh, and he wrote in the 1920s. Uh, and Esper's work became what became uh, later called matrix training. You can look it up on matrix training. Uh, and then finally they started calling it recombinative generalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Esper's work was uh, how do people develop language from a behavioral perspective and how do people learn language? And his interventions, you'll still see them in, uh, in Java. Uh, you'll see stuff on, uh, but very few people understand the, uh, the stimulus arrangements that were involved in creating them, the matrix training modules that were involved in training them. Uh, Howard Goldstein, no, not Howard Goldstein, right? No, Arnold Goldstein was in, uh, was in um, uh, too many goals. Uh-huh. <laughs> Arnold Goldstein was in, I believe, uh, he did the work on, uh, conduct disorders and building empathy. Arnold Goldstein did the work. No, Howard Goldstein did the work on uh, recombinative generalization, uh, which was then called before it was called matrix training and how to use these matrix uh, training modules. But we've always had a history of stimulus prep arrangements. If you look at stimulus equivalence, if you look at relational frame theory, and how these things are kind of put together and arranged. Mm-hmm. We've always had concepts of how you arrange a stimulus environment to produce behavior. 
I don't think as much anymore uh, that we have a generation that is really um, as savvy with conceptual issues. Mm -hmm. I don't feel as though that the training, it's not their fault. It's the training programs they attend became test prep programs for the BCBA. Mm -hmm. And they did not become, uh, I mean, now we're starting to see theoretical Mm -hmm. conceptual issues. But, you know, back then in the the early 2000s, the tests were sorely lacking on asking theoretical questions. Like I said before, you could probably hand people a test based on about behaviorism. He has a list of like 10, 12 items that are myths about behavior analysis and find out how many behavior analysts people call themselves radical behaviorists today. They're no fault of their own subscribe to these myths yeah i mean they they're maybe knowledgeable about uh producing tax and mans and other kinds of things but uh the philosophy of behaviorism like you would read in about behaviorism or um you know beyond freedom and dignity or other kind they may not be that uh that well informed about it yeah and i think they're also not so as well informed they're good with micro models of functional analysis but how do you extend this functional analytic process over time to produce a developmental psychopathology we talked about conduct disorder a little while ago well patterson in 92 published an article on behavior therapy where he was using the matching law and talking about uh pro-social versus coercive tactics Uh as behavioral response classes and how a child would use those to escape parental punishment Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, uh, if you go back and you look at it, uh, the matching model reinforcement and in a naturalistic setting. And Patterson did a couple articles on that. He did an article for the Behavior Analyst Today on, on his functional analytic model that he had done early. Uh, and then uh, on how he moved away to the matching model mm-hmm. for more long term description. You know, in the matching model, they throw out the first, like, thousand to ten thousand data points is ah, that's acquisition they want steady state. Mm-hmm. so that's more important for what you're talking about when you talk about personality or you talk about um long-term pathologies mm-hmm. that's more along the line where you need to know go i mean i think one of the things that was phenomenal what patterson did was show how you could get a stable trait conduct disorder based on a matching model reinforcement Mm -hmm. and so you know these are the things that i I think are conceptual issues that need to be brought back into the field and like i said once they're gone i mean jerry patterson's passed um now they still have argued social learning institute but i think even james snyder who did a lot of the the actual calculations and did the actual data crunch and data analysis i believe he's retired what 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 do you think about like something like Cantor's interbehaviorism? Does that fit in with uh, like the, this overall philosophical understanding that's not being recognized? I think Cantor's interbehaviorism um, is got some very interesting points to it. I'll go back to this concept of setting events mm-hmm. all the time, which is broader than motivating. Emotions. I always tell people that setting events are a physical setting; they're the biology of the person. Uh, and we've known this in behavior analysis that's important for a long time. Bob Waller um, 
who uh, did a lot of work early on with children conduct disorder, showed that you can actually treat conduct disorder with very young kids by decreasing the insularity uh, of the mother. So the mother's insularity has a job on um, where he showed that you can decrease mom's insularity, get her some support groups, get some community level mm-hmm. reinforcement going on for mom, and the conduct problems with the child go down. Mm-hmm. Right. So he used to talk about the insular mother and her problems, right? So I think that conceptually, we're chasing down some problems now in behavior analysis, and we've always chased down problems in behavior analysis, but we shouldn't forget the problems we've chased down in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, I talked a little bit about the developmental model of conduct disorder from uh, Patterson. Well, Patterson's model was an escape condition model for conduct disorder. Right, uh, and so he looked at the escape from parental punishment or the haphazard use of punishment from parents. Bob Waller looked at the reinforcement from the parent. He looked at a positive reinforcement model, so it's negative reinforcement, escape conditioning for for uh, Patterson. Bob Waller looked at a positive reinforcement model for it. Mom gives no attention. The function of the behavior is to get that kind of attention. The kid acts out. Everybody's paying attention to the kid. And he looked at that for the development of antisocial behavior. So it's a different, slightly different model. Uh, different. Uh, they used to use the term paradigm. It's probably a misuse of the word paradigm. Mm-hmm. But it was a different paradigm uh, in behaviorism, the escape conditioning paradigm versus the positive reinforcement paradigm. Uh, but you could see that they led to kind of different treatments. Um, and then they converge. Um, for example, if I go back to Patterson's model, Patterson wound up doing behavioral parent training, uh, a little slightly different from Connie Hamp's model of behavioral parent training. Connie Hamp did a model of behavioral parent training that a lot of people who went on to do, um, she did, uh, like a, if you practice parent-child interaction therapy, a lot of them use Cunningham's model. But if you go back to Patterson's model, why did Patterson wind up with it? Well, he noticed that conduct disordered children had 60, 70 different behaviors that they had, which was near impossible to treat individually discreet. So what he did was create a parent training model where now you could have the parent as the therapist and they could go after using mild punishers mm-hmm. like time and all and response cost and reinforcers such as praise and uh, token reinforcers for the kid to complete chores and to do positive things. So that was the model of the early 60s, the late 60s. Well, in, in the 80s, uh, Dennis Kuvo, uh, Dennis Russo and Kuvo, they did an article that showed, for example, that if you take a conduct disorder child and you compliance train them, Mm -hmm. right, all these other behaviors fall out, right? So you have this idea twofold that uh, first you have to, the only thing you can do is parent training for conduct disorder because they have so many behaviors. It's what we used to call the impossible approach because the parent's burning out. But there's some good long-term data on that. Even with adolescents, uh, behavioral parent training's got one-year follow-up data that's really good. Therapists burn out long before. Uh-huh. <laughs> you okay. have to wind up recycling a lot of therapists. That was what happened with that Patterson. Kubo's model, though, became uh, Russo and Kubo. They did this model in... Uh, 
where they showed, and that's actually, I think that's either in behavior therapy or it's in job, where they showed that a lot of these behaviors co-occur, they're part of the same response class. If you target compliance, then all the other behaviors drop out. Mm -hmm. So we move from impossible to very, very goddamn hard. Uh -huh. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then what happened was I think that Bob Waller's group was doing stuff on, well, can we create family rules and mm -hmm. then reinforce pro-social behavior? Um, his had a student, Dr. Student Strand, um, and Waller and Strand came up with this idea. If you see it as escaping, and this kid is really seeking an alternative behavior of positive reinforcement, what would be the alternative behavior for uh, escape behavior, mm -hmm. right? Social approach. So what he did was he developed a whole program, and this was getting a lot of research generating, a lot of research interest back in the late 90s, early 2000s, mm -hmm. on just reinforcing social approach. Mm -hmm. Now, if you just reinforce social approach, you avoid a lot of the side effects like Kubo and uh, Engelman did a, a, a book called Generalized Compliance Training. And it was a good book for outcome research and effects, but a lot of people felt the Generalized Compliance Training program was harsh. And I kind of, when I looked at it early on, I thought it's a little harsh myself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was, it was a good program. It's got a lot of research data supporting it. If you go for conduct disorder kids and you want to use that program, that is an evidence-based program. Um, and behavior analysts started going to things such as errorless compliance training <clears throat> as a treatment approach uh, in the area. But then Waller came up with this idea of just rewarding, building momentum on the alternative behavior from the matching, which would have been social approach. And he showed you could get that same dropout effect. So we went from, and parents actually kind of like when you put reinforcement on social approach, but this shows uh, a continuously developing model. In other words, it shows a model that starts out with parent training, moves to, well, you don't have to target everything, let's target compliance. And then moves to, well, you don't even have to target compliance, maybe in some cases, right? But now you can target social approach. Uh, and a lot of people find uh, acceptability of social approach reinforcement better than compliance. Yeah. Right. So when you talk about um, uh, acceptability, treatment, treatment acceptability, you get high ratings on social pressure. By the way, and it's something that a lot of developmental psychologists like. Uh -huh. uh, a lot of attachment psychologists like this idea that every time the kid comes over, you spend time with the kid instead of sending the kid away. Every time the kid asks for something within reason, you try to give it to the kid in some way. They like this idea of you know, building this idea of reinforced social approach that the kid has take their attachment to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think that your description uh, that you just gave there about the having a model uh, is a good, uh, that would be a good thing to say to parents as a description of what the program is. Uh, so they won't be so uh, mystified, or and I, I suspect many parents are a little bit they have an aversive uh, reaction when they get told, well, well, this is this is behaviorism and we're reinforcing. But what you just said is it's a good step-by-step -step thing that they could follow and see, okay, mm -hmm. and this is something that could work for my kid. 
Right, right. And I think behavioral analysts have lost contact, even with early literature that was very behavioral. If you go back to what Don Beer was doing in language mm-hmm. training, uh, with the incidental teaching program, what he developed into milieu language training, even if you are working with autistic kids, a lot of that stuff he was working with. Um, my interest in early reflection on that was uh, when I was working with kids in the school system. We had a lot of kids that were diagnosed with uh, what would now be called intellectual disability, but that mm-hmm. then it was uh, mild mental retardation was actually what the diagnosis was back mm-hmm. then. Uh, when you go back and you look at some of the interventions that people like Steve Warren were doing, that were like students of it, that were based on the idea of getting generalization, you find that they moved away from ash trials, that they were able successfully to do that with children, that they were able to use what we know was the technology of generalization back then mm-hmm. and get some really good outcomes. Um, and so that's some really good stuff to kind of go back and refresh on. But we don't even talk to our behavior analysts like Gary Hedge that were in uh, uh, and Mariah Lakonik that were in speech language pathology. That's not even covered anymore. People don't read them. And yet their work was phenomenal back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you go back and you look at some of those Don Beer, they used to do edited volumes every so often. If you look at some of their uh, you know, Warren and Kayser's articles and uh, used to be Warren and Warren, then I think she married somebody else. Mm-hmm. But um, if you go back to some of those articles, they were very well designed. Now, they didn't use tax amends, they did receptive and expressive language because they had partial buy in to the idea that, okay, if we're going to talk to linguists who are in our department, we better speak their language mm-hmm. as well. But they were able to put out some really good developmental uh, models uh, for even things like grammar. You have Sturmo and Wise, Wise, who did a good behavior analytic program for grammar. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Ziggy Engelman that did, uh, from a direct instruction perspective, Teach Me Language, which was really a good program. Mm-hmm which was a kind of a direct instruction program, which kind of pairs rule learning with operant conditioning. That's the way he always described it. Speaking of instruction, then, you, you were part of a, the webinar, Novel Uses of ABA, and your presentation was, give me 52 behavior analysts and we can change the country. The need for do-it-yourself evidence-based mental health through streaming and television. Now, mm-hmm. uh what what can you just with whatever time we have left? What can you tell us about that? Because that sounds um, that sounds like something to really expand it to the whole population potentially. Yes, my argument's been for a number of years now that okay, we produce behavior analysts. Yes, we've been pushing licensing laws in every state, and we should continue doing that. But I think that if you think back to the old uh, health model you'll see that there's a universal intervention, there's a at-risk intervention, and then there's an indicated intervention at the top. That got adopted, by the way, by the PBS people, Bob Horner's group. Mm-hmm. They developed really well out. They use that as kind of their way of making sure people understand. But that primary, secondary, and tertiary intervention model goes well back to the 60s into healthcare. Mm-hmm. We need in mental health a good model that hits all three mm-hmm. out of the public because half the people with mental health issues do not get treatment 
Some of it's because they don't trust therapists, they don't believe in therapists, or for whatever. Mm -hmm. We have some really good skill-based training programs that we could put on to a mental health TV station. I wrote an article with Jonathan Cantor, who's a very great guy as well, on uh, functional analysis of depression. We published that article many years ago. But that article was to look at for example, there are many different models of depression. There's mm-hmm. a positive reinforcement model of depression. There's a too much punishment model of depression. There's a lack of rule governed behavior model of depression. Lynn Rem did a wonderful intervention on that. If you look at Rem's self-control training, she added some cognitive elements to it. But these were phenomenal behavioral activation being the treatment choice for uh, uh, escape behavior and for things that are not enough reinforcement. Behavioral activation is a well-established treatment intervention. But these are things that are not rocket science. We can actually develop those into evidence-based videos. Mm -hmm. And we can actually put those videos on, go to the state, write up a proposal, sit with your state mental health department, say I want access to the cable channel that the state has, or can the state establish me a cable channel in its budget to do mental health TV. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a program you can kind of pay for itself because if you want to really go over to the dark side, you could just get uh, uh, dr- uh, med- uh, drug companies to advertise on it. I'm sure they'll pay lots of money to advertise on your mental health TV station. But if you want to do that as state funding, it doesn't cost much mm-hmm. because a lot of these direct uh, training programs, for example, behavioral parent training, Lynn. Uh, Lynn Clark used to do SOS for parenting, Mm -hmm. which had a lot of these kind of visual things. And there are these kinds of interventions uh, that you can, for example, problem-solving training. You could develop a problem-solving training model, do seven episodes on it for your web series. You could go, there are free streaming, there's Stream TV, there's YouTube. I I was about to say, yeah, what about YouTube, Netflix, Roku? Just put it on there. You could put it right on there. People then could come over to the website or they could watch it on the television station because not everybody's on the internet. Mm-hmm. I think the numbers I saw in 2017 is about 83 86%. These were Pew numbers of people have the internet. I also looked it up uh, from Nielsen and some of their subgroups. Ninety-seven percent of America owns TV. You know, it's it's interesting. I used to always tell people, old technology never dies. And uh-huh. Sometimes it just exists. Uh, there was a person that told me that, uh, and I didn't believe it at first. There was a study that had come out that showed that millennials spend more time listening to the radio than they actually do on TV. Mm-hmm. So if you want to advertise for millennials, you might do better putting it on the radio. Yeah. Well, the radio, Jesus Christ, that's forties technology. That's right. <laughs> So all technology never dies. Now you just get, like, the AM stations. Who thought AM would have lived this long? You still have AM radio. Right. (laughs) Right. So so you have those things. But what the idea is is to put a first line of defense that you can actually use later. For example, if somebody's in an area that has had a mass shooting, you could put out a... Uh, uh, an email thing, not an email thing, what do they call it now? These texts to all their cell phones saying, if you're experiencing some difficulty mm-hmm. with this, there's this coping model that we have 
that we could help you with um, for, uh, it, it was called stress inoculation training. It was a cognitive model, this one. It's a cognitive CBT model. Stan Meichenbaum did it. Um, you can learn these coping skills for dealing with PTSD. You can become inoculated to stress. If you so seek, just click on this link, right? And then they would be right over to the TV station training you to do. So there are things we can do that we can reach out into the public, create this idea of maybe a behavior analyst in every state, a behavioral psychologist or a behavior analyst in every state running a television station that is state supported, mm -hmm. that turns around and is uh, state supported, that you're a function of the mental health department there, that you put um a board member to a board together make sure it's not offensive to the community because a lot of times you can get things that are uh for example a lot of people don't remember this but the behavior analysts were uh behavior therapists rather were really interested in a concept called sensate focus this was before the days of viagra but this was to help couples reestablish their sexual relationships in couples there okay uh, uh, bob mccurdy i think was bob mccree was a big uh, behaviorist. That he used to present at ABT all the time. I made a few of his workshops. But he went through this whole sensate focus technique. But obviously, you know, that's not primetime stuff. Some of this stuff's going to have to have a restricted audience, I guess. Right, well, that stuff would have a restricted yeah. audience. Or you would have the board say, no, we're not getting into that. I mean, sexual functioning in a couple's relationship is very important. But... It doesn't have, uh, maybe that's not where we want to direct our mental health TV dollars. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, I bet I know, like, I bet I know what pharmaceuticals will want to advertise on that show, but. Oh, yeah. They'll be like cracking on it all the time. <laughs> you know, so, but you can actually make these things uh, that are of community interest that, uh, you know, the little blue pill might want to sell uh -huh, yeah. on, on your on your itself on your station and actually fund it. it can also be funded with taxpayer dollars the uh -huh. most important thing to do though is if you're doing this is make sure you're using evidence-based programs make sure that the curriculum for them that you're using that you're filming uses behavior analytic models of curriculum development because they're very superior models it's one thing to just say this is evidence-based but you've got to have an evidence-based for how you're teaching, mm -hmm. right? And so that's the second thing you want to do. So those are the two elements. You want to sure you have an evidence-based mental health practice, and then you have an evidence-based message method by which you're teaching it to people in the community. And then you have a place to display. Now, the easiest place to display it is putting in a proposal with your state department of mental health and saying, I like to do this because we have a rural population that's hard to reach. I like to do this because it's expensive to have all these therapists uh, and maybe this will take away the need for therapy for some people. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so you're looking at... The, I mean, it's a, it, the possibilities are... I mean, a lot of people get court-ordered to, to get mental health treatment and have, and have a hard time meeting that requirement. Uh, sure. with work and everything else and this is you know a, a way that they could receive what they're supposed to have and, and actually comply with it and maybe get hopefully get something out of it the, the other thing i was going to yeah. say is the administrators of these programs 
then would probably be licensed behavior analysts. I would think that they're either licensed psychologists or licensed yeah. behavior. Yeah. That would be my preference because they would have to actually be a little broader than your regular behavior analyst. Yeah. Uh, because they would have to be able to understand curriculum. You know, I had a talk with Jerry Shuck years ago uh -huh. uh, about this was before he passed. I had a talk with him about why didn't uh, curriculum-based measurement find its way into the BCBA exam. And he said, well, honestly, because the exam had to be international, uh -huh. and a lot of places don't do curriculum. But again, that's an area. Uh, if you think of Chris Skinner's work, you think of a lot of the behavior analysts that were working in curriculum-based measurement. This was stellar work, curriculum design, curriculum uh curriculum-based uh, measurement. Um, and you'll find that it was very helpful. You know, when you go in there and you wouldn't teach math by just randomly going in there and teaching math skills to kids. You would say, let me start with the curriculum on math and then go from there and see where he's having his problems. You need, social skills are the same way. You should have a curriculum on social skills. Like Ruth Wellington Begun, she has social skills books by age. You should have a strict curriculum in that you're using. And that's what I'm saying here. If you're going to do mental health TV and you're going to do it right, mm -hmm. even if you're doing cognitive behavioral interventions, you need to have a training technique yeah. that gets those techniques across. Yeah. Now, like I said before, Lewinson's coping with the pressure model. Easy model. It's a behavioral model. Uh, all his, He started calling it cognitive behavioral towards the end of his life, but all the early stuff is lack of reinforcement. You have lots of people out there that never go to see a therapist because they have a low-grade depression and they don't want to be stigmatized. You have a way to immediately access them with mental health TV. And just think of the overuse of any depressive medication in our society uh, is, is amazing. And one of the biggest prescribers for any depressive medication is not psychiatrist. Uh -huh. It's uh, actually OBGYNs uh -huh. followed by GPs. Uh -huh. You know, so what you're looking at is a lot of this, and it's not stuff they want to be doing. To be honest with you, uh, the OBGYN and the GP does not necessarily yeah. want to be in the business of prescribing your antidepressant. They're yeah. not specifically trained on that. If you can target market those people, uh with the interventions that they need, you're going to have some good areas of intervention. Now, it's also a little broader, though, than just behavior analysis in general. Uh, there's a whole area. There was a journal it used to be. It's still around, I think. You can look it up. It's called Media Psycho Psychology. And behaviorists used to publish in that. I always point to the old studies that they did on mo modeling uh -huh. uh, for they used to put them in a small group for Sesame Street. That's how Sesame Street knew it was being affected. Uh -huh. uh, they would do these modeling and reinforcement programs on Sesame Street, have the kids count along, and they would watch the kids in this focus group and see where they're counting and then test them after and say, did they get something out of it? Well, that's all in media psychology. And so you need to reference the media psychology literature to start looking at things like what's the entertainment value of what I'm putting on. I might have some great stuff, but as Dick Malott used to say, it's not fun. It's not fun. And, <laughs> you know and I think the, the Blue's Clues show had a lot of the, uh, the, they seem to use a lot of behavior analytic techniques with the repetition, the prompting. and, and uh, Yeah, Blue's, 
Yeah, and that probably all comes right out of the the media psychology literature. I have not followed up on media psychology in a long time. But, uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, yeah. the potential for it. Well, Joe, uh, I, it would be an understatement to say you've given us a lot of information. Uh, do you think maybe we could do this again sometime? Yeah, sure. I'm always available. You know, whatever. Like I told you, the, the last generations are disappearing, and mm-hmm. my part of my life is to make sure what they told us doesn't disappear with them. Yeah. Um, and, they're, and we're always chasing down new problems in behavior analysis, but a lot of those old problems were solved, and there's no sense in reinventing the wheel. Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.